The Flying Scientist, Episode 7, Berlin or Bust. In 1989, under Mikhail Gorbachev, President of the Soviet Union, the policies of Perestroika and Glasnost finally came to a head and the Berlin Wall fell. It was a time of huge change and my friend Gus Chandler and I were both interested to see what would happen in Berlin in the immediate aftermath of the effective reunification of East and West Germany. We had previously visited the city back in 1987 and had observed the wall when it was still functioning as a barrier between East and West. We'd actually been to Checkpoint Charlie and gone up one of the watchtowers to overlook towards the German side, as well as getting a day visa to pass into the then communist-controlled eastern side of the city. So we were very keen to see what would have happened since we'd last visited. We set off in the trusty Vauxhall Astra estate by ferry from Ramsgate across to Ostend, and our first stop was in a very comfortable hostel for young people called the Snuffle Lodge in Bruges in Belgium. We'd only intended to stay one night, but we ended up staying for a couple just because the, the pool tables were good, the pinball machines were great, the food was cheap, and so was the beer. We also picked up a passenger a very nice lady called Teresa from Canada, who's a little bit older than us, but wanting to get to Berlin just as we did and was quite happy to share some of the fuel costs. So the three of us set off across the long motorway journey to Berlin, what would soon once more become the capital of a unified Germany. This time we didn't have to stop for transit visas. We didn't have to change Deutschmarks into Ostmarks and we weren't being pestered at every stop on the motorway to buy duty-free goods for hard currency. How things had changed. We found a pension in the Kreuzberg district of the city and settled in for our stay. First stop, of course, was to go and see Checkpoint Charlie and the remains of the wall, large chunks of which were still standing, but with huge holes in them. The ground on either side of the wall was littered with chunks of concrete which had literally been hacked off by the populace. Like everybody else, we picked a couple of pieces up and bought them home as souvenirs. We were also fortunate enough to be tipped off by an East German in a cafe that we should go and check out the East Side Gallery. This is a long section of the wall along the riverbank on the former East German side of the border, which was turned into a public art space very quickly after the fall of the wall. It's now internationally famous, and when you pass through the brand new Brandenburg International Airport in Berlin, you'll see pictures taken directly from the East Side Gallery. We also revisited the Soviet War Memorial at Treptower Park, where we'd been during the Communist time two years earlier. That was rather sad. The huge marble memorials using stone taken from Hitler's Chancellery had been defaced with neo-Nazi graffiti. The good thing about that trip was that we were able to go right to the end of the metro line, something which was previously beyond the limit of the city visas that we had, which meant that we could get to Schoenefeld Airport. Not a lot had changed. It was still populated with Aeroflot, Lot, Czech and other communist-era airliners, all visiting and plying the same routes that they had for the last 30 years. Schoenefeld had a very nice observation deck with a cafe and bar, and it was a sunny day. So in early September 1990, 
we sat in the sun and watched the Tupolevs and the Ilishins coming and going. Of course I had the camera with me and I was busily snapping away when an East German policeman accosted me and remonstrated in German that I shouldn't be taking photographs. Within seconds, an old lady at a nearby table stood up, came straight over to where the altercation was taking place and started remonstrating with the East German policeman, basically saying in German, you can't tell him what to do. This is a free country now. If he wants to take photographs of the planes, he can. Now buzz off. The policeman was so shocked that he actually did just wander off and left me there to snap away happily for the rest of the afternoon. Oh, how things had changed. Instead of rotting in a Stasi cell, there we were, sipping decent quality cool lager and watching some fantastic Soviet metal taxiing on the apron. Later that week, we took ourselves out to Potsdam and visited the marvellous palaces and also saw the building where the Potsdam Treaty was signed. These, of course, had only just been opened to Western tourists and we were still something of a novelty. We were able to climb one of the Soviet-era watchtowers and get the view that they would have had two years previously of us watching them, watching us, watching them. We visited the Pergamon Museum and took in the Gates of Babylon, the altarpiece from Ephesus and some of the other great treasures that lie there to this day. It was still relatively cheap at that point. It had actually been one Ostmark the first time we'd gone. We clubbed on the Conferston Darm, walked through the shades of the Tiergarten, checking out the zoo, and eventually went off to check out some Soviet air bases at Oranienburg, before finally heading down in the direction of Leipzig. Our plan was to spend a night in Leipzig and then drive down to Dresden, with an eventual view to arrive in what was still then Czechoslovakia. Leipzig turned out to be quite interesting. We hadn't actually booked any accommodation. And when we arrived at the local tourist information office, the young lady behind the desk assumed that being Westerners in a smart car, remember it, of course, was a company car, we must have lots of money and therefore recommended that we stay in hard currency hotels where we would have been paying about $100 a night. Back in 1990, that was a lot of money. We didn't really want to spend that. And after a bit of negotiation, she disappeared, made a couple of phone calls and then came back and said, well, for 30 Deutschmarks, you can have my flat. Well, that sounded like too good to be true. So we immediately said yes. What she'd arranged to do was move in with her girlfriend in the flat below. These ladies were a little bit older than us and they'd made the assumption that we couldn't understand any German at all. Whilst we only had limited German at that point, we could understand what they were saying. As her friend said, I hope you're not going to feed them and how long are they going to be here? We smoothed it over and eventually took the girls out for dinner in exchange for getting a guided tour of Leipzig and some tickets for the symphony orchestra, which I can highly recommend. Leaving Leipzig on the 7th of September 1990, we made the long journey up over the mountains, through the border post and down past the city of Teplice, arriving in Prague late in the evening of that same day. We'd arranged to meet at the Ambassador Hotel in Wenceslas Square, a Czech colleague of ours from Cambridge, who actually had her home in Bratislava, but had agreed to meet us in the hotel lobby. By nine o'clock that night, she hadn't shown up, and we were really getting seriously worried. 
Of course, there were no mobile telephones in those days either, and the phone number she'd given us for Bratislava just rang out. There were no messages left, and we really didn't know what to do. We'd been relying on her to make all of our travel arrangements for our 10-day stay in the Czech Republic. As it happened, we ended up driving around the city of Prague late at night, looking for somewhere to park up the Astra estate so that we could put the seats down and get some kip. It wasn't easy. I couldn't see anywhere that was dark and secluded until we were up in the castle district, driving along past a very long high wall. I suddenly spotted a gateway in the middle of it, which appeared to lead into a very dark field. This'll do, I thought, as we drove in put the car just behind the wall, turned the lights off, put the seats down and got some shut-eye. What a rude awakening we got at 6.30 the next morning with a little old lady banging furiously on the window. Apparently, we'd parked on her husband's grave. Yes, it was a graveyard. We apologised profusely and with the rough guide to Europe in front of us, set off down to the main railway station where they promised that you could get a shower, a hot towel and a decent breakfast of ham, egg and chips with steaming tea, all for less than $2 a day. They were right. It was absolutely delicious and suitably refreshed. We had to come up with a new plan for what we were going to do in Czechoslovakia. The beauty of working for a multinational company like Philips is that you tend to meet people from different departments who work all over the world. And I had actually been working and training with a chap called George Herdlichka, from Prague. So a quick consult of the telephone directory, no internet in those days, led us to the Philips office that served Czechoslovakia in a quiet suburb of Prague. I walked straight into the reception desk and said, I'm here to see George Herdlichka. Oh, is he expecting you? The receptionist asked. Well, no, not really, but I've met him in Cambridge and I need some help. George swept down the stairs a few minutes later, looking incredibly cool, as if he'd been expecting us all along. Steve, welcome to Prague. I thought you'd never come. Well, George, good to see you too. We need a bit of help. You remember that Czech girl we had working in development? Unfortunately, she let us down. She's supposed to make some arrangements for us here, and we're at a bit of a loose end. Ah, come into my office. I'll see what I can do. George led us into a very nice office on the first floor and arranged for tea and biscuits while he thumbed through his philofax who remembers those where he had copious notes about the physical and mental attributes of lots of young women who wanted to be employed as hostesses on the Philips stand at the Bruno International Trade Fair well this one is blonde and she's five foot four she has very good English and she's got a degree in chemistry is that the kind of person you think you'd need? Well, I guess so. Is she available? I don't know. Let's call her. George made a couple of calls and very soon we were hooked up with a very pretty, informative and charming young lady called Michaela, who was to be our host for the week. She introduced us to some of her young friends and we organised some day trips out to Kudnahora, the city of silver, and the spa town of Mariaszka Lajna, where they have a musical fountain and a trade union hotel which serves excellent food and where I was first introduced to the Czech national drink, Bekorovka. Sadly, I was driving, so while Gus and Michaela got completely sloshed on the Bekorovka and the beer, I had to sit there drinking fruit juice. 
It was all great fun and we had a really fantastic week with the team in the Czech Republic. Not much had really changed. The city was still fairly grey, there were no German tourists and it was impossible to buy Kodak film for your camera. All you could get was Orwo colour made in the Soviet Union. We had had to change a certain amount of money into Czech crowns just to get the visas to come into the country because they still had a foreign exchange policy. But there wasn't very much you could actually buy with Czech crowns, so we were extremely generous in tipping everybody. But by the time we drove back up towards Siplice and our route home through Germany, we still had a vast amount of crowns left to spend. So we dropped into a supermarket in that city. Really, the only thing that was of any interest to us young men was the beer. Czech beer being, of course, some of the best in the world. And so we stocked up on one litre bottles of Budvar. At that time, you could take 60 litres personally in each, which meant we could put 120 bottles in the car. We unpacked some towels and jumpers from the cases and used them to stack the bottles across the boot of the Astra. Driving up over the mountains and then down towards the city of Dresden, we arrived in the afternoon in time to go to the tourist information office and find a room for the night. It was very basic. A guy with two daughters had once more kicked one of them out of their bedroom and leased it out to the two Westerners for hard currency. It suited us fine. The next morning was Sunday and it was wet and drizzly as we set off through the cobbled streets of Dresden. We needed to get out to the highway and get back up towards the north of Germany where we were due to arrive in Hamburg. As I approached a set of traffic lights, the lights changed to red and I immediately stopped the car at the white line. The very next thing I heard was a frantic ringing of a tram bell and looking in the rearview mirror I could see one of Dresden's ageing trams bearing down on us with sparks literally flowing away from the steel brake blocks as they tried to get a grip on the wet track. I had to jump the light and the train ended up halfway across the junction, luckily just missing us. At that point, only Blackpool had trams in the UK and I'd never actually encountered one before in a car. It was a lucky escape, but the rest of the journey up to Hamburg and a reunion with Sandrine for the weekend was now all under control. All we had to do was keep our nose clean, watch out for crazy German drivers and enjoy the scenery. <laughs>